This is week number 32 in our discussion of the book of Daniel. And for the last five weeks, we were walking our way through um, the vision, the interpretation of the vision given to Daniel in chapter 7. And we finished that up last week uh, in chapter 7. And so this morning, we'll be moving into chapter 8. But you'll remember that chapter 7 is seen as parallel to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. And you remember in that dream in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great statue. And that statue was made of different types of material. Uh, It had a head of gold, and then it had a, a chest of silver, chest and arms of silver. It had a belly and thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron, and then finally feet with toes that were both iron and clay. And so we see these uh, four or five different elements, and um, as we walk through that, we saw that the head of gold is explicitly stated to be, um, to be Babylon, to be Nebuchadnezzar himself, and then the others are not described in detail, but relating those to history, we can see that the uh, arms, the silver part, were the Medo-Persian Empire, the bronze part, which was the belly and the thighs, was Greek, and then uh, as you get to the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, um, most would say that that is uh, Rome, uh, the the Romans and their empire, and a resurrected Romans at the end of the age, but you know I'm not in that camp, okay? And eventually one day I'll tell you what camp I'm in, but we're not to that point yet. And so that's the general interpretation is that these different materials represent different kingdoms. Well, the parallel to that is seen in chapter 7, but more detail is given. So in chapter 7, Daniel himself has a dream or a vision in which he sees four beasts come up out of the tumultuous sea. And we're told explicitly that those four beasts represent four kings that come up out of the earth, it says. So out of the people of the earth, four kings arise that lead four kingdoms. So these men are humans. They're not anything that's superhuman or uh, beyond the normal um, of people, but they do extraordinary things by powers of, that don't come from themselves. And I think the, uh, the scriptures will be explicit in that as we go through this. And so those four beasts represent four kingdoms. You remember the first was a lion, Uh, that had wings on its back, that represented, again, parallel to the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, represents the Babylonian kingdom. And then after that came a bear that was humped up on one side, uh, corresponding to the Medo-Persian kingdom, corresponding to the arms and the chest of silver in the image. And again, one side humped up uh, over the other because... Medo-Persians, the Persians were much stronger than the Medians were and actually overtook the Medians even though not by force but more by trickery than anything. So the two really became uh, one nation. Um, Always the leader of the Medo-Persians was a Persian. You remember Cyrus was the one who rode into town after they had uh, killed Belshazzar. So those two things correspond. Then we saw in the beasts that Daniel saw rise out of the sea, we see a leopard. That leopard had four wings on its back and it also had four heads. That'll become very significant as we walk through chapter 8. 
and that leopard represented uh, the Grecian Empire um, being split into four different empires at the death of Alexander the Great corresponds to the belly and the thighs of bronze over in the statue of chapter 2. So again, we see um, correspondence. And then finally, we get to the fourth beast, which came up out of the sea, which Daniel could not describe as an animal because it's so horrific. And uh, doesn't correspond to any animal he had ever seen. And so he just described it as a beast, and that beast had ten horns, and then among those ten horns, an eleventh smaller horn came up. Um, And so we're given much more detail in this um, vision that Daniel had about the fourth kingdom than we had in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had saw. This horrible beast with the ten horns corresponding to the legs of iron and maybe even the feet of iron with the toes made out of clay and iron, ten toes, ten horns, seems to be some correspondence there. The thing to note in all of this is that both have four kingdoms. The fifth kingdom, which is given in both, the fifth in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream was a stone cut without hands, you remember that, that crushed the statue and crushed it to such a point that it became dust and the wind came and blew all the dust away, meaning those other kingdoms are totally done away with. We see the same thing happen over in um, Daniel's dream in chapter 7, although they're not crushed and to become dust, but the leader is clearly uh, taken and thrown into the river of fire before the throne of God. That final kingdom in Daniel's vision being the Ancient of Days seated on his throne and given dominion to the Son of Man, which is uh, very extremely clear as we went through this reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, can no doubt be made about that after looking at all the terms used in the Old Testament. This is speaking of Jesus Christ and the eternal kingdom of God at the end of the age. So these things all correspond. Now we were given much more detail about this fourth um, kingdom, the legs of iron, the feet of toe, uh, with toes of uh, iron and clay, or the fourth beast with ten horns with an eleventh horn that comes up. These things correspond, and we're seeing that that eleventh horn has eyes like a man and a mouth like a man. So this is a human, although he does extraordinary things. And so we saw him in that uh, he's very boisterous, he's arrogant, he even speaks against the Most High, meaning against God himself, the ruler of the realm of mankind. This uh, arrogant man um, speaks even against him. And we'll see more about that as we get into chapter 8, where we're given even more description about what the little horn does. And so um, not only does he speak against God, he wages war against the saints of God and overcomes them meaning he's winning the battle. He will see in Revelation that he kills many, many people who believe in Jesus Christ. And so this small horn is speaking against God and waging war against the saints of God, overcoming them. And very specifically, we're given the length of time in which he does overcome them. You remember the time, times, and half a time, representing one plus two plus a half, three and a half, we looked over in other passages in Daniel and saw that those three and a half correspond to three and a half years, 1,290 days. 
And so very explicitly throughout Daniel, we're given more and more detail that we can link together. Now, we went other places in the scripture to see that the saints that the uh, little horn is overcoming are not necessarily the Jews, although he does inflict some damage to the Jews. It's more against other children of Abraham, other streams of the children of Abraham. You know, uh, Shane described this in um, Romans chapter 4. There are many streams of Abraham, right? You have, uh, at the beginning, you have Ishmael, who um, would lead to be the Arab people, and you have Isaac, who would uh, lead to be the Jews. But after that, you also have many other uh, peoples who didn't come uh, by genealogy from Abraham, but they have a faith like Abraham, so they believe like Abraham, so they become children of Abraham. And so uh, I think Romans very four, Romans 4 is very clear in how people, both um, genealogy and outside of the bloodline of Abraham, all become the children of Abraham. Some of those believing, some of those not believing. Uh, he has, he has uh, bloodline children who came from Abraham, but are not believers. And then he has some that uh, even came from Isaac that aren't believers and some that are believers. And you have many others who came from other families that have a faith like him and become the children of Abraham. So as we see the little horn waging war against the saints, it's a mixed group of people that he's waging war. But this you know, they're all true believers and that he is winning the battle. He would win the battle if God didn't step in. But we see that in the end, the Most High does step in, that the, uh, the little horn is thrown into the river of fire and totally destroyed. And you remember we talked about the, the differences between the end of the Babylonian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. They all continued on for a while because their influence, their culture, their languages and all extended into the kingdoms that came after them, but not so much for the fourth kingdom, which is absolutely cut off. It's done away with. The world has changed. The ruler has changed. The belief has changed. The, the whole landscape is changed when the fourth kingdom comes to an end. You remember we look back at uh, verse, chapter 7, verse 12, and saw that that's the interpretation that applies to that verse that that fourth kingdom is cut off in a different way than the first three kingdoms were. So we have all this detail that we've been talking about, running over to Revelation and seeing some relationships there, running to Matthew 24 and seeing some relationships there, how all we're talking about. But now we'll return back and see that in chapter 8, Daniel's given a second vision, and this vision gives us more details about part of the first vision that he had. So we'll begin this morning um, just by reading the first 10 verses of chapter 8. So Daniel, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, there the scripture reads, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, the king a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. 
Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw a ram, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rusted him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his, horn, his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host of, and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Now we'll stop there because that'll probably be enough for us to try and walk through this morning. So in this eighth chapter, we have another vision of Daniel, and it will correspond in the most part to the second and third kingdoms that he saw that we saw in Daniel's vision in chapter seven and that correspond to what Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter two. So we're talking about the silver uh, chest and arms, and we're talking about the belly uh, and thighs of bronze, or we're talking about the um, leopard that had four wings on its back and its head um, became had four heads, or we're talking about the bear that was humped up on one side. So those are the things that are described in more detail in chapter 8. So you see chapter 2 was very general, not much detail. Chapter 7, much, much more detail about the fourth kingdom. And now here in chapter 3, more, uh, chapter 8, more detail about the second and third. So we've had very, very little detail about the third kingdom. We'll get much more in this chapter. Okay, so this is how Daniel is receiving visions that he expands the explanation of what we've been talking about all through the, uh, the book of Daniel. So here in chapter 8, as you open it, it reads very much like chapter 7, right? That you have Daniel, and um, this is in the third year of Belshazzar the king. What was this, uh, the opening of chapter 7? The first year, right? So we're two years later, not a long time. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, and then there was approximately 50 years or so before Daniel had his first vision. Now it's only been two years. So Daniel doesn't tell us explicitly here that he writes down notes like he did after his first vision, but he must have because, again, he's writing this much later, at least probably at least 15 years later, maybe longer than that, when he's writing out this book. So he had to write some notes about the, this vision also, although he doesn't tell us that 
explicitly. Now, that means that when Daniel receives this vision, what does the governance of the world look like? Who's in charge? Yeah, Babylon is still in charge, so we're still in the first kingdom. Now, Daniel's given very explicit explanation about this vision. So it had to kind of baffle him a little bit when he, when he gets this vision and it's interpreted for him because some of these lands are, that are talked about here are not prominent at all during the Babylonian kingdom. And so, but he's given explicit detail. We'll talk about that as we um, get to it. You remember um, that when Belshazzar has the handwriting on the wall. Remember that? Does he know who Daniel is? No, no, it says that somebody else said that maybe the person... Yeah, it says his mother, actually, which was probably his aunt in reality. It could have been his mother, but probably was his aunt who was alive at the time um, when the, the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar was interpreted. Um, but he doesn't, it doesn't come to his mind himself. But when Daniel gets there, he does say, I've heard about you. Now, I'll show you something interesting. If you look at the very last verse of this chapter, the very last verse, Daniel will tell us that after the vision's over, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. So when Belshazzar was the king, who was doing the business of the king? Daniel was. So apparently you can see that Belshazzar didn't have a whole lot to do with the running of the kingdom or his rule, which is why they, one of the reasons why they fell. I mean, they fell by the ordination of God, right? Because God had given the vision and declared that they would. And he also had given the, um, to, uh, he had given the prophecy of they'd only be in captivity for 70 years. So all those things had to correspond. But Belshazzar was asleep at the wheel when it came to running the kingdom. So we see Daniel not only prominent in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but even all the way down to Belshazzar. Daniel's still prominent in running the king's business. So Daniel, throughout the whole Babylonian era, was the guy who was really helping to direct the running of the kingdom. I mean, there have been four kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and Daniel survived every one of them to finally still be running the king's business at the end of the day. So you can see God clearly orchestrating that this Jew who was in exile, who went into captivity and was second in command of Nebuchadnezzar, really ran the Babylonian kingdom through its whole entire reign. And so while Daniel wasn't prominent to Belshazzar, he was still prominent in the kingdom. I think before I had said that Probably Daniel was uh, somewhat obscure during that time, but clearly not um, with that interpretation out of the last verse of chapter 8. So Daniel, always a prominent figure in the Babylonian kingdom. Now, Daniel sees himself in the city of Susa, right? That's what he says. Now, there's some who believe that Daniel was physically in Susa when he had this vision, but there's nothing in the context here to give us that interpretation. Nowhere does he say that I was actually in the city. Just in his vision, he saw himself in, this, in the city of Susa, which means what must be true, at least. If Daniel sees himself in the city of Susa, what's got to be true? He's been there. 
right? Otherwise, how would he know what city he was in, right? If you just saw yourself in some city in the Mideast, you wouldn't know which city it was, right? So there had to be things that he had seen. So Daniel had to have traveled to Susa previously. Now, where is Susa in relationship to Babylon where Daniel lived? It's further east. Yeah, a little south, but mostly east, um, about 250 miles to travel from Babylon to Susa. It's in the current country of Iran, whereas Babylon is in the current country of Iraq, right? And so, um, but that's just the current geography. In those days, um, the, um, the Babylonians owned it all. They ran that whole area, um, centered in Babylon, but extending many hundreds of miles in all directions outside of Babylon. So, uh, so yeah, really the whole Mesopotamia, which goes all the way up to Macedonia in reality, which is current-day Turkey, they, they owned all that territory. Um, they didn't push so much into Egypt, you remember that, that they had battles against the Egyptian pharaoh, but they didn't push into Egypt. Um, just just a little bit in that uh, area from where you transition um, from uh, really the the Mideast into Africa, that little bit of area, they did own that, but they didn't push into Egypt. So, and, and we'll see some of that uh, described in this uh, vision. So he's in Susa, which is a, apparently a capital city. And if you look at um, archaeological documents and history, you'll see that Susa was very prominent in the Medo-Persian Empire, not so much in the Babylonian, because Babylon was the center of it all. But nevertheless, this is a true city, and there uh, is a river there, and I guess this is pronounced Ulai, maybe, U-L-I-A-I, so um, that runs very close to the city, but apparently is outside of the city by what goes on in this vision. So... um, that's where Daniel is. Now, Daniel says it's in the province of Elam. Now, very interesting thing. I, this is one of the things I've been trying to study is how do you make sense of all these territories and names and lands and where do they come from and who they're named after and all of that because like later, Cush will become very important. And so trying to figure out where Cush is and what it represents. But, so I've been reading about some of this. So if you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 10, you'll see where some of these names came from. So go back to Genesis chapter 10, which is just after the flood. So Noah is on the scene. Genesis 10. And you'll, many of the names that are used in chapter 10 become provinces or lands later in Scripture. Because this is, the, this is the genealogy of Noah and his three sons, is what's given in chapter 10 of uh, Genesis. And so these are the descendants of Noah. Noah had how many sons? Three. What are their names? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? First he gives the sons of Japheth in this chapter. Then he gives the sons of Shem. And then finally... He gets down like in verse 22, sorry, he gives Ham next. And then he gets down to, chap, to verse 22, Genesis 10:22, And it reads, the sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arparshad 
and Lud and Aram. So there you see Shem is one of the descendants of Noah. He's a grandson of Noah. So apparently they went to this area and that's where they settled. Now all of these names and all of their lands are all very close to the Mesopotamia. And and so is uh, the city that we're looking at now. Very close, you know, 250 miles is a long way if you're walking, but when you've got that many people who've got to settle, it's not really that far. And so that's where the name comes from. If you look over in chapter 12 of Genesis, then you'll see even that, uh, chapter 14, that there's even a king by the time you get to chapter 4, 14, where you're talking about all these wars and you see all these names given and then the king of Elam and the title king of Goem. So these are, this is, has become a kingdom because it's significant enough where it has a king over it. So by the time you get to the Babylonian kingdom, many, many years later, it's a province, okay? And it has a capital city of Susa. So this is a real land. This isn't just a vision that's imaginary and he's making this stuff up. He'd actually probably traveled to this city previously, and it's significant in history. Uh, and, and most of these lands will become very significant when we get to that part at the end of Daniel before we go otherwhere in Scripture. We've got to put together some of the lands that we're talking about. We'll even do a little bit of that when we talk about um, chapter 9 where the, where the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem. We, we'll have to. The more I try and delay some of these things, the more I can't because we'll, we get into the details in Daniel. So, a lot of reading to do. So, um, we're in Susa. It's a capital city. We're out, not in the city, but out by the river, okay, which apparently flowed just outside of the city. And so, Daniel is out there kind of in the countryside, and he sees in the distance this ram. Now, what's significant about the ram? I mean, do the rams that you think about have horns? Yeah, absolutely, right? So it's very natural for a ram to have horns. Now, what's, spe- what's specifically given about the horns on this ram? All right, if you have a New American Standard, which I read out of, it says that they're long, Right? If you have an ESV, which many of you read out of, because that's what Shane preaches out of, it says what? High. And literally the word means high. So why the NASB says long, I'm not real sure. But high would be a more literal translation than long. All right. So, But they're not the same length, right? Or they're not at the same height. One is higher than the other. So meaning one is more significant than the other horn. Now... Why is that so? Because this represents the Medo-Persian Empire, right? Now, how do you know this represents the Medo-Persian Empire? Yeah, you read on just a little bit further, right? Down in verse 20. And I mean, this is not cloaked in any way, right? The ram, this is Gabriel giving the interpretation. Now, Gabriel, who looks like a man. So if it's the angel or not, I don't know. But his name is Gabriel, but he looks like a man, not like an angel. Okay, and he's given the interpretation to Daniel because he was told to do so by a voice speaking from the other side of the river, which represents God. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. That's pretty explicit, right? 
So there is no doubt in our mind that the ram represents Medo-Persia, right? Yeah, um, and, and, and others after them, because they didn't reign for the whole term of the Medo-Persians, but Cyrus being the more prominent one in Scripture, because he's there when the Babylonian kingdom falls. Okay, so this ram represents Medo-Persia, and what does this ram do? Right, or he, he, he butts and he um, charges, would be the words I think that the scripture actually uses, um, into the different directions. Now, what directions does he charge into? All right, north, south, and west, not to the east, right? Now, Susa's to the east of Babylon, so, but the Medo-Persians did not go as far west east as would happen under Alexander with the Greeks. I mean, he didn't go into India. The Medo-Persians did not. But Alexander goes all the way to the other side of India. So much further um, eastward than the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians pretty much went from where we're at, the city of Susa, over to the Mediterranean and then pushed up into Macedonia and all the way down to to the gulfs is mainly their territory. So they did take over all of that, and that's what this represents. This is their, their territory. This is their area, and they ruled it um, well, and they ruled it um, where no one else could stand against them, right? That's what it says. And, and they made themselves arrogant, and no one else was able to stand against them. So they were a strong, legitimate military power, um, one of the four uh, kingdoms that God has in his visions and that he prophesied would happen. So they are very, very significant. They're more significant. All right, we don't know a lot about in Scripture what they did, but what did they do? Just from your general knowledge, what, what is significant? Why did the Medo-Persians come in when they did and do certain things that would be prominent in Scripture? Okay, they, they came in and they put down the Babylonians who would have never let the Jews go, right? But Cyrus made a decree that the Jews should return to their homeland. Once, and, and he does that because Daniel tells him about the prophecy that had been given about 70 years. So Cyrus goes, oh, obviously, you guys are supposed to go back. So go back. And not many people go. So there's a second decree by the Medo-Persians, go back to your homeland, and a few more go, but still not a significant number. And then there's a third decree. Now, those decrees will become very significant, and we'll have to talk about them. And let me show you why. Because in chapter 9, we looked at this last week, or the week before, the week before that. In chapter 9, I think it's verse 24, Maybe, well, I should have written it down. 23, nope. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your city to finish the transgression. There, there's another place here, I thought. Maybe not. 
Yes. Thank you. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, will be cut off. Okay? So the decree had to be given by somebody, and God used the Medo-Persians to do it. Now, there's all kinds of confusion and conjecture and discussion because there's not one decree. There are three decrees. So you've got to figure out which one is in verse 25, right? Well, I think we'll be able to do that. So bold to say, I think we'll be able to do that. You know how we were able to do that? Because how many weeks is it from the decree to when Jesus is cut off? 69. So that's pretty specific. So you can start from the time when Jesus was cut off and work your way back, right? And that time has to work out. And we'll do that. And we'll talk about the multiple decrees. Because it's a long time. Uh, I believe it's 60 years from the time when Cyrus says, go back, to the time when Artaxerxes says, go back. And you've got to figure out which one it is, because people get all kind of confused and say, well, it couldn't be true because Cyrus made the first decree. What? Eh, there are multiple decrees. And, you know, this I believe. If God could, to the day, have the children of Israel in captivity for 400 years, then he could, to the day, have the decree made to the time when Jesus is, is sacrificed, to the day, to the very hour. So, and I just have that much confidence in, what, in God's uh, ability to control history. And so we'll work our way through and have long and, and argumentative discussions about that. So, that's yet into the future. But that's why they're significant. Because they, they come in and they're the ones who make the decrees for the Jews to go back. And that would have never happened under the Babylonians. They would have never let them go. So God orchestrates all of this in his own way for his own uh, purposes. And we see that the reason, one of the reasons the Medo-Persians took over is to make this decree and to send the Jews back. Okay, so Medo-Persia is significant. Although we're never given any more detail about them than this. This is it. This is the most detail that we'll get. So you have this ram in verse four, uh, 3 and 4 who's in control of territory. And then up comes a male goat, right? Now, personally, I don't think of a goat being stronger than a ram. It's just not the way I think about it. But maybe I could be wrong, right? Because I've never seen a goat with a horn like this. So what's significant as this goat comes on the scene. What does the scripture say? Describes several different things. All right, that he has this one conspicuous horn. That's the last thing we're actually told, right? But that's okay. He has this one conspicuous horn. What else? Comes from the west. Now, if you go directly west of Babylon, what do you run into? Mediterranean Sea. So, but it's still to the west. So this is actually coming from a little bit to the northwest, but still from a westerly direction. What else is true? Are he, he, he moves across the earth, it says, right? Without touching it, which means he's fast, right? Fast. Now, if you go back to the first vision of Daniel, what was true about the animal that represented Greece? It was a leopard. Now, we talked about this. Leopards are not the fastest animal, right? 
There are many animals that outrun a leopard. Matter of fact, the leopard's not in the top 25 of animals. So it's not fast, but this particular leopard, what? Had four wings on his back. So this leopard, and the fastest animals are birds, by the way. And so this leopard is very fast because he's got four sets of wings, or he's got four wings. Now, why does he have four wings? Because ultimately it becomes four kingdoms, and so each one of the heads needs a wing. Four generals that it will split into. Now, we see that explicitly in this, in this vision that Daniel has. So this, this uh, goat corresponds to the leopard, represents the kingdom of Greece. Now, how do you know it represents the kingdom of Greece? Because verse 21, right? The one after the last one that we read. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, that, there could be some debate there, right? Because was, was Alexander the Great the first king of Greece? His father, Philip II, was king who was assassinated and then um, Alexander, who was Alexander III of Macedon, actually, was his name. We know him as Alexander the Great. Um, became king when he was 20 years old because his father had been assassinated. Now, Greece at that time, nowhere near as significant as it becomes under the reign of Alexander the Greek. So that's, that's really what it's speaking of. It's not that Greece wasn't a kingdom. And didn't have kings. But when you think about it in the plan of God. And what it does. It was insignificant. Until Alexander. So we, we know that Greece existed. Now I don't know. If, uh, if Daniel knew about Greece or not. But th- this. Inter- maybe he did. I mean he's a very learned man. He excelled above all his contemporaries. When he was studying. And he's in the king's court, so he knows about more than most people do. So maybe he did know there's this um, country called Greece, you know, to our west. Because it's a long way from Greece to Babylon. I mean, without any doubt, it's a long, long way. Alexander, after he became king, did not immediately go on his conquests. He waited a couple of years. And then those conquests, we think of them being very rapid, and he took over the whole world and all that. Well, it took 12 years. So, I mean, it's not like it happened overnight. It took 12 years for him to capture all that he captured. And he captured not only Susa, as I said, and all that region, but he went far to the east. He's the, matter of fact, that kingdom is the only kingdom that controlled both Greece and all of India. None of the ones before him or after him controlled all of that. So, um, anyway, this, uh, this, he does move fast. If you think about the territory that he took over, he does put down the Medo-Persians, who are the strongest. You see that here, that he, um, he butts up against them. Um, and Alexander is represented by the single horn. Now, this is one of the things we've said about all of these um, horns and kingdoms until you get to the last one, right? Is that they're individual leaders. I mean, over the Medo-Persians, you see Cyrus as being the prominent one. Over the Babylonians, you see Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately Belshazzar as the prominent one, one guy. 
when you get to Greek, it's Alexander the Great. And when it's broken into four pieces, you have one guy over each one of the four pieces. That's what's different about the last fourth kingdom is that it has ten kings, even though ultimately it has a prominent leader. Go ahead. Right. Saying that Alexander was the most prominent. Sure, sure, sure. And you could, I mean, that would be legitimate to say that. Um, okay, so we have this, um, this goat who's coming up, um, and he obviously is going to have a confrontation with the ram who's in control, right? And so there apparently is a battle, and what, what pursues out of the battle? Well, Greece does win, but you, you're like the first interpretation given to Daniel of his first vision, right? Don't give us the short version. Give us the full version. So notice what it says. What does it say specifically? Yeah, it actually says he broke their horns, right, of the ram. So he kills the kings. The kings are no more. Because that's what it means when, when the conspicuous horn on the ram is broken, right? He's dead. So he kills the kings. And of course, when you do that, the kingdom falls and he tramples them under his feet. And, and Alexander did absolutely wipe out the, Bab- I mean, the Medo-Persian kingdom. It was no more. He took over all their lands and many lands beyond theirs. And so they are no longer prominent for sure. All right. And so we have... Um, So that's verse 7, right? I saw him come up beside the ram and he was enraged at him. I guess just because he was in charge. And so he didn't want him to be in charge. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue him, the ram, from his power. Now, why doesn't anybody come to the assistance of the ram? Well, if you think about it, the ram, no one could withstand him, right? And so if the king of the hill gets put down, there certainly is nobody else to come, even if you put them all together, to try and stand against him. Now, Greece did have to battle as they took over all these lands. It's not like they just walked in and people gave them the lands. I mean, they, they were a military might. And Alexander didn't build that army. He inherited it from his father. They were already a military might when Alexander, at 20, took the throne. So he, he didn't build this great army. Go ahead. I don't know. I didn't read those details. I'm sure that... I don't know. Um, because he doesn't take over just Medo-Persia. I mean, he takes over all of Macedonia, all of Medo-Persia, all of India. Um, you know, there, there's not much left that he doesn't control. He controls most of the world. They even push down into Egypt because that's where you see the city of Alexandria today, named after Alexander. Now, Alexander's intention when he took over Babylon was to make Babylon the capital of the Grecian Empire, but he didn't live long enough to do that. He wanted wanted Babylon to be the center of the kingdom, and then he would launch all his wars from there against other peoples. So he intended to take over more. He just didn't have the opportunity to. Yes, he dies in Babylon. 
So, um, so we read that on. That's what comes next, right? In, um, then the male goat, verse 8, magnified himself exceedingly. Who does that sound like? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Except for Alexander doesn't go insane, right? He actually dies. Alexander's about 33 when he dies, so relatively young, right? And it's not like people in those days lived to be 85 like they do today, right? But still relatively young at 33. He's been warring for the last 12 years. So um, there are all kinds of theories about how Alexander died and why and all of that, but By bodyguard, so but he could have been a Medo-Persian, right? <laughs> Don't know. I, I didn't go into those details yet. There's concerning magnifying himself. He just in a thirteen-year period founded twenty cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he was pretty pretty proud, right? And very successful. Never has there been before or after Alexander a guy as militaristically successful. Nobody even close. Okay, so he greatly expanded the kingdom of Greece. All right, so he's arrogant, um, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, Um, we have pretty good documentation in history about this, right? And there are four prominent generals, okay, but there's more than four. There's actually six or seven, that, but the others are nowhere near as significant as the four prominent ones, okay? They all had little city-states around Greece, um, small areas, but the other guys had significant areas. And, and those four guys are Cassander, Lysimachus, uh, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And those, you know, we've talked about the uh, Seleucids, right? And we've talked about the Ptolemies. Because those are the two that rise to power. For 50 or years or so, these um, generals war against each other, even though they had been in the same army. And they war against each other because they've now become kings. They've become horns. And it's clear in Scripture by this time that the horns represent kings, Right? So they each had their own kingdom. So they fight against each other to take each other's territory. And by far, the most successful are the Seleucids because the Seleucids are the ones who owned uh, Mesopotamia. They owned Macedonia. They owned uh, all of what we call the Middle East. They owned all the way over to the other side of uh, what we call India. So that was all their territory. Huge, huge territory. Ptolemies were uh, restricted down into Egypt, and then the other two really in Greece and the land just to the um, east, of, uh, east of Greece. So small areas, the other two. So the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are the most significant of all the ones that won out during these 50 years of war. And that, that is chronicled in history in great excruciating detail if you want to go read it. I mean, there are many, many details given about these guys would team up two against one and defeat him, and then one of them would kill the other one. And this just went on and on and on and on and on. 
uh, as they fought against one another until finally you have pretty well established and the Seleucids being the strongest, clearly, of all of them. Okay, now this becomes very significant in Daniel's vision and in the interpretation of the vision. Um, And we'll see that as we continue to go here. Um, So we've got, um, we've been through the Medo-Persians, the the Grecian kingdom is established now, and it's been split into four parts, which are the four heads that we saw in chapter 7 of the leopard. And those have now come to prominence, and the Seleucids are the strongest of all of those. Now, it goes on because it doesn't leave us just that's all there is about the third kingdom like it did previously. Now we're given more detail because notice what it says in verse 9. Out of one of them, out of one of what? Out of one of the four kingdoms that are the old Grecian kingdoms, right? So out of one of those kingdoms came forth a rather small horn, sound familiar? Which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. All right, so he pushes south, owns all the way down to where the waters are, the gulfs and ultimately the ocean. And he pushes to the east, which is all of that land of India that we talked about. doesn't go into China, what we call China, but he certainly controls all of what would be Pakistan and Afghanistan and all of those lands are under his control. Okay, and everything in between there and the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And he pushes toward the beautiful land. Okay? Only used three times in Scripture, only used in Daniel. So that doesn't help us a whole lot, right? So what is the beautiful land? Tennessee. Tennessee. (laughs) That's God's country, right? So... So the Seleucids push toward Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, I mean, without going into a whole lot of detail, um, you could call it Canaan, you could call it Palestine. Either one would be fine. It's basically over to the Mediterranean Sea, okay, because that's as far as you can go when you go to the west, because then you run into water. So he, he's... It basically is describing the land that was under control by the Seleucids. Okay? So out of that land, out of that kingdom, so it's pretty specific. And if you just read history, you'll know that the, the people that he's talking about, the, the horn from which the one comes, the little horn, are the Seleucids. Not a whole lot of, I mean, there are people who would debate you on that, but I don't, I don't really understand why. Because if you read history and you look at the geography, it's pretty clear that that's who we're talking about. So so out of one of them, this small horn comes and he does what? He grows exceedingly great, right? So a king, a horn will come out of the Seleucids who will be exceedingly great. Now, I'll just tell you, the whole of the story, out of the third kingdom comes one who is the forerunner of the ultimate one 
who comes out of the fourth kingdom. So all the bad guys don't come out of the third out of the fourth kingdom. The one who portrays what the ultimate antichrist, the little horn of the fourth kingdom does, comes out of the third kingdom. Comes out of one of the four parts of the third kingdoms, comes out of the Seleucid Empire. Without any doubt. Okay, so this is pretty clear. Now, look at the thing he does in verse 10, because and this is where we'll stop today. But I mean, this is this is hyperbole, this is dramatic language. It grew, meaning the horn grew, up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Now, what does that sound like? Not what the, It sounds like angels and things happen in the heavenlies, right? What do we know about this horn that comes out of the Seleucid Empire? Right, but we're not there yet. That's the fourth kingdom, right? This is, we know he's a man, right? He's not supernatural. He's not anything other than just a man, okay? Because he's a king who comes out of the Seleucid Empire. So he's, he's just another guy, but he's prominent. All right, so when he grows up to the host of heaven, what does he say? And he grows so that some of the stars fall. Is he talking about angels? You'd find a whole lot of people who would agree with you if you said yes. But I don't think so much. Some of the stars fall. So who? But it doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say that. And this is not the Antichrist. This is coming out of the third kingdom, not the fourth. Magnified itself to be equal to the commander of the host. Right. So it sounds like somebody that's making himself to be equal to God. And so, I mean, is he saying that he's magnifying himself to the point where he's saying, I'm greater than these have these these angels, these whatever, these gods or whatever. And then now he's even saying, now I'm even greater than, or I'm the same as God. Well, let's see, and, and he will we'll go through all of that, okay? <laughs> Stars. What could the stars represent? God, pagan gods, Israel, descendants of Abraham. Look over at Genesis 15. Genesis 15. You remember this story. This is as God ratifies his covenant with Abraham. Puts him to sleep, cuts the animals in half, goes between them, all that, right? But before he does that, chapter 15, verse 5. And he, God, took him, Abraham, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Relating the descendants of Abraham to the stars in the heavens. There's more. Look at chapter 22. where again, uh, Abram has been willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar, and God stopped him. And then in chapter 22 and verse 15, God speaking to Abram again, 
Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. His seed would be like the stars of heaven. One more. Look over in Deuteronomy. Um, Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 1, right at the very beginning. Deuteronomy 1, chapter, I mean, verse 10. And it says, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. Again, comparing the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, to the stars of heaven. There's one more place. Look in um, Exodus 12. Back to Exodus, Exodus 12. This is as they come out of um, Egypt, 12.41. I love this. At the end of the 430 days, what? To the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. The hosts of the Lord came out of Egypt. Who is that? The Jews, right? Sure. Well, and even here they're separate, right? Because it's the king who goes against the hosts and against the stars. So even then, that in the it's not the Jews. It can't be the Jews. God's not punishing the Jews and the kings of earth. Let me ask you this: the Jews being exiled from their land, being totally overrun, punishment from God or not? Absolutely, absolutely, for the sins of their fathers, right? So God does and has and continues to punish the Jews. Okay, there's no doubt about that. And he ultimately will punish these guys. Now, you have to think about Isaiah. Are we talking about the end? Or are we to- if you read on, well, they will gather together like prisoners in their dungeon. They will be confirmed in prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be abolished. Right. But like, ho, 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 ho. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like all prophecies in the Old Testament, there's always a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. Always. So while Isaiah's writing, and he is writing about things that are going to come future, he's also writing about things that are going to come soon. There's always dual fulfillment of prophecies given in the Old Testament. So they, they, they saw it in one context. We see it in a different. Even in here, we see the same thing. There's a short-term fulfillment of these things, and then there's a long-term fulfillment. And that's what we're going to talk about here. There is a short-term fulfillment of what Daniel's talking about not too long after Daniel. And yet here we are 2,500 years later, and there's still not ultimate fulfillment. 
So there's always a short term and then a long term fulfillment. Go ahead, John. Apart from the connection to the stars in the Old Testament, which you just went to, right? If you follow, we know it's we know it's talking about Greece, right? And we know that the description of the battles and and his exaltation first against the host and the stars, mm -hmm. and then rising to the Most High Himself against God and challenging God in the temple, because it's clearly talking about his sacrifices and his sanctuary, which are Right. No, no doubt. And between the time when this prophecy is fulfilled and the current time when Daniel's writing it, Zerubbabel will go back and build the second temple of the Jews so that these things can happen under God's orchestration of the Medo-Persians allowing the Jews to go back. So all of this is being orchestrated together by God. And we'll put that together. I just wanted to introduce you to the thought that these stars and the hosts of heaven are nothing supernatural. They're just Jewish descendants. They're just normal, they're people who get overrun by this one prominent king that comes out of the Seleucid Empire. I think this is pretty clear. There would be people who would debate for sure because this language isn't normally used to speak of the Jews it's only in Daniel where you see the beautiful land. Daniel is writing what he sees, thinking about his homeland, thinking about his own people. So he's writing what he sees in the vision. Now, the vision has interpretations, which will be given, because we, we've seen the vision now. Now we'll see Gabriel give the interpretation of it. Okay? So we'll walk through this, and we have to we have to do this in detail because... Daniel is given details about the third kingdom, not the fourth. This is the third kingdom that we're talking about where this bad guy rises up. So it sounds like the fourth, but it's not. It's the third. Okay, so we'll talk about that and put the pieces together. Any final thing you want to say? Question you want to ask? Go ahead, John David. A statement. <laughs> Right, right, which we don't want to do. We, we want to let the scripture and the spirit speak to our hearts from the scriptures. That's what we're after here. Thank you for your time.